Hey guys, today this is what your pastor is going to tell you. Today we're on part four of the Romans 5.12 series by Dr. Michael Heiser. His blog post, really great stuff. 2009 of all things, 2009, that was a long time ago. Anyways, today he's making a bit of a little tangent, a little not getting lost, but, you know, going on to a bit of a little different tangent here. So we were going to be talking about infants and something like that but today it seems like in part four we'll be on comments people have made so let's get into it he says i'm only sticking to the germane material that is a lot of the comments i'm referencing misunderstand the idea of a contingent immortality and it's a peripheral issue anyways i'll bring it up again in the subsequent post on where do babies go so i can pick up in those parts of the reply then I want to camp on the real subject at hand here, the idea of Adam's guilt being transmitted to humanity. He says, let me reiterate. He says, let me reiterate as I begin that my position includes most of the traditional ideas, though with one important difference here. I believe that humanity's need for grace stems from Adam's fall. What happened at the fall did indeed infect every human being, rendering every human in need of a savior who is Christ. In other words, I affirm that Adam's sin put all humankind in the position where they could only share eternity with the true God by virtue of a redemptive act on the part of the true God. This act was, of course, the work of Jesus on the cross and his subsequent bodily resurrection. You may wonder at this point how that relates to what I've said about those who are unable to believe, referring to babies, aborted, a fetus, etc., and who, in my view, have not incurred guilt before God. That will be the subject of a subsequent post. Where I differ and what I'm asking readers to think about is just how was all humanity affected so that all need a savior. I got us into the discussion by noting some serious problems with the traditional view, namely how does Jesus, as a full son of Adam, get away with not inheriting Adam's guilt? I don't believe that Adam's fall affected all humanity by transmitting Adam's guilt to all humans. I believe Adam's fall affected all humanity by depriving all humans forever more of the condition under which they could abide with God in a state of non-sinfulness. Adam and Eve were the only humans to ever live in that condition. After the fall, humans were destined to die, and not only that, they were on their own. He says Adam and Eve were the only humans to ever live in that condition. I wonder if he's saying that... Or he's like maybe implying something like there were other humans outside the garden. I don't know. He says, after the fall, humans were destined to die. And not only that, they were on their own when it came to living in righteousness, a precondition for living with God. Adam and Eve met that condition before the fall. They did not need redemption until they sinned. They would live on indefinitely at God's pleasure. His presence maintained this state and they were in his presence. I think I would be on safe ground in saying that evangelical theologians across the board, rightly wanting God to get credit for Adam and Eve's sinless state before the fall, chalk it up, at least in part, to God's superintending influence and presence in Eden. God was the chief reason they remained in pre-fall sinlessness. Once humans were removed from that, forget it. After the fall, human beings were left to their own efforts, and in a hostile environment in the earth outside Eden, they would inevitably and invariably fail and be unable to save themselves. Yeah, I don't know about this. I think I think Genesis 3 implies that the sin of Adam and Eve or the transgression or, you know, just disobeying God, the issue was the actual eating of the fruit, the making themselves God compared to, you know, the true God. But I don't know, maybe we'll see what he means later.
He said, first, you are saying that babies are born innocent. This is explicitly against scripture. There is none righteous, not even the infant. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Heiser says, correct. I'm saying that babies are born with no moral guilt before God. If they are born and if they live, they will inevitably and invariably sin and incur moral guilt before God. It is incorrect that this is unscriptural. The, argue, the only argument from scripture that babies are born with moral guilt before God is the traditional view of Romans 5.12. When Paul, drawing on Ecclesiastes, says that there are none righteous, he's of course correct, but his point is not all are under moral guilt. I would approach Romans 3 in its context. First, Paul is not targeting a fetus or zygote. He's targeting all adult Jews and Gentiles to make his point that all of them are under sin. And I would agree. No one cannot not sin. How can I be sure this is the way to take Paul here? Let me quote Paul by adding some verses that the responder omitted after citing Romans 3.11. It's typically how it goes. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He says, Note that in verse 12, Paul defines and clarifies verse 11. He is targeting all those who have turned aside, a term that denotes rebellion and disobedience, and who have have become worthless. They had to do something, commit a sin, to get into that condition. Regarding that no one does good, it is a bit peripheral, but relevant. Augustine had the notion that an unbeliever could never, ever please God since he, she, was an unbeliever. Nothing an unbeliever could do would please God. I think this is silly since the Old Testament has examples where pagans do God's will. So was God not happy with his will being done? Ouch. It makes no sense. At any rate, I bring this up to get Paul's point in the phrasing. He isn't saying no one ever does anything good. That isn't true. And all we need to discuss is the concept of common grace. And examples like that of Cyrus, above who fulfilled God's will as he wanted it done. Rather, Paul's point is that no one always does good, i.e. no one is perfect and thus deserving of salvation. No one has the righteousness needed to go to heaven. No one gets eternal life by merit, period. Hmm. Okay, so when he says there's no one righteous, there's when Paul says there's no one righteous, no, not one, he's saying perfection. No one is perfected. No one is perfect. No one has the righteousness needed to go to heaven. No one gets eternal life by merit, period. The responder, emoted other, the responder omitted other verses that make the same point. Paul is targeting those who commit sins or acts of evil. Verse 13 says they use their tongues to deceive their Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, etc. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say they have descended from Adam and his guilt is transferred to them. Certainly not in the text. If anyone can show me how the fertilized egg of the human conceptus fits these descriptions, doing evil and committing sins, then I'll change my view. Commenter says, you simply cannot escape the Pelagian result of this unless you have not pondered this very hard by reading some of those divines that I've gone before you and thought on this harder than you. Wow, that's that's rough. Okay, uh, first of all, this whole Pelagian thing. Pelagian probably wasn't even Pelagian. So, that's just weird. Anyways, Heiser says, so now the issue is that I'm not quoting a divinity author or theologian. And how would anyone know how much I've thought about this? 
<laughs> Those sorts of objections are obviously not important. The more important is the Pelagian charge. Let me quote a divine for those who may not be familiar with Pelagian. He's talking about divine as a scholar. It says, The deepest cleft separating people calling themselves Christians, Warfoe claimed, is that which distinguishes the naturalistic conception of salvation held by some from the supernaturalistic conception held by others. The naturalistic vision, which he designates autosoterism, which is self-salvation, and which the church has designated Pelagianism, after Pelagius, a late 4th, early 5th century British monk who proposed it, contends that men can save themselves, that is to say that their native powers are such that men are capable of doing everything that God requires of them for salvation. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's true. I don't think he took that view, actually. I think the last post was very clear on this as is the above prefatory commentary to this post. Oh, I mean, just to be 100% clear, Pelagian, if you want to learn more about that, Blatant Flowers has some great videos on the topic. Anyways, but let me repeat it again, Hauser says. Threefold, no one saves themselves. No one merits salvation in any way. No one gets to heaven apart from the work of Christ. This is the antithesis of Pelagianism. Here the commenter has jumped the gun. Presuming what I'll say in the next post, the reply is incorrect. Stay tuned on that part. Commenter says, now, of course, it is infants who do not sin willfully, like Adam. Their sin and guilt before God is inherited. Paul says that death still reigns over them because they are still sinners and in need of Christ. Uh, Heiser is saying, I think the commenter here is presuming that those who don't sin like Adam are babies. And everyone else in my caveat category. Let me quote Paul again in Romans 5.14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Note that while Paul says these others who didn't sin like Adam did nevertheless sin, the word here sinning is an accusative aorist participle of harmatano, the normal verb for to sin. So, Paul's point is not that Adam sinned a certain way and others inherited Adam's guilt. The text defies this interpretation. Paul says Adam sinned a certain way and others sinned some other way. Again, show me how the aborted fetus commits a sin. <laughs> Ouch. And I'll change my view. I'm just sticking with the text for what it says and I'm not inserting anything it doesn't say. Next commenter. Paul says, by one man's disobedience, Many were made sinners. Verse 19. How can Adam's sin make other people sinners? Heiser responds. Simple. See the above prefatory remarks. Adam's sin placed humanity outside the conditions that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. As he noted, God's superintending influence and presence in Eden was the primary agent or force that kept Adam and Eve sinless. Once humans were removed from that, they had no hope of not sinning. And notice in Genesis 3 that Eve is not in the presence of God when she is deceived, and Adam is also not with God when he sins. The writer is making a point. So how did Adam's sin cause others to sin? That's how. Yeah, that's... I don't know about that. I mean, I, mean, I guess you could argue that God was somewhere else. But, like, what about God's presence is keeping them from sinning? I don't know. Comforter. I'm pondering... What is the difference between innocence and righteousness? You claim that babies are born innocent, but you deny that they are righteous. What is an unrighteous innocence? 
was Adam righteously innocent or unrighteously innocent? Heiser says, this is a good question. I'll likely hit on it in the next post, but a few thoughts here. I believe the responder is using innocent as an equation to my not morally guilty. So I'll go with the innocent under that assumption. By innocent, I do mean that baby fetus, etc., has not committed any sin, and so is not morally guilty before God. They have committed no violation worthy of the wrath of God. So d- does this equals righteous? Not exactly. Sin in my next post, I will explain the baby issue in light of this weird category. Scripture has called the second death which those without Christ suffer. It isn't an exact equation. I will be arguing that innocents go to heaven because they are raised with Christ, as everyone as is everyone at the last day. The innocents are... The innocent... The people that are innocent are redeemed by the resurrection, and so it is holy of Christ. People that are innocent really don't go to heaven because they are righteous. They go there because Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. Those who sin, not in the innocent category had to be made righteous through the faith in Christ. That is why they go to heaven when they are raised. Salvation equals the transfer of Christ's righteousness for their sin plus resurrection. Two elements here, as opposed to the one for the innocent. Only Christ has the righteousness for salvation, but innocents don't need the transaction. They just rise with Christ, and so he is the lone source of their salvation and salvation of those that sin. It is all of Christ. He says, those who sinned and were not made righteous suffer a second death. Okay, this will be really interesting. I've never heard of this view. Let me know what you think. Second death? Okay, I, I'm really excited for this justification. Commenter says, do you believe that these innocent babies are born with a sin nature? Of course he says no. What? Uh, well, actually, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Uh most people, when they say sin nature, that's just the proclivity to sin. Like, if you if you are born, you have the nature to sin. Commenter says, if yes, then how can you have a sin nature without being a sinner? Heiser says, question is relevant because of my no answer. Commenter says, if not, then do you have to sin to be a sinner? Or do you merely have to be sin? I don't even know what this is saying. Heiser says, yes, you have to be a sinner and everyone will who is allowed to live. Commenter says, this is my point. If we take Romans 3.23 as a definition of a sinner, someone who falls short of the glory of God, then you do not have to sin to be a sinner. You merely have to miss the mark of God's glory. Oh boy. Heiser says, this is convoluted logic that presumes what it is thinking to prove. Just what is the glory of God in this verse? I'd say, and bring a boatload of theologians with me, that it refers to the moral perfection of God, that it is, that is, positive and negative. God is without sin, and he is completely righteous. Humans need to meet both conditions to measure up and be with God in heaven. Innocents do not have sin. They also will not be like Christ in righteousness until they are resurrected. They fall short. Sinners, of course, fall short in that they are not innocent. And the... They And though they have had Christ's righteousness transferred to them in salvation, we both all know that this is an already not yet thing. Sinners will only be truly righteous upon glorification, just like the innocent. Okay, yeah, so we, we all sin right now. Later, we'll be made righteous as in perfection, like God, like Jesus. Either way, all humans fall short of the perfection of God and are only in God's eternal family by his grace, and Christ is the lone mechanism for all of this. 
He says, don't you just love this? Everywhere you look, it's Jesus. Commenter. Now a bone to pick. Regarding Augustine's seminal headship view, Dr. Heiser, you contend that persons cannot literally exist pre-birth within their ancestors as it defies logic, philosophy, and natural science. All well and good, but what to make of Hebrews 7, 8 to 10? Okay, this will be a good one. Heiser, good question and a frequent response. Okay, so the commenter is asking a question. How does it match with Hebrews 7, 8 to 10? All right, so it's a good question. He lets the commenter continue. He said, the commenter says, Here the author seems to be revealing under inspiration that Levi indeed existed in the loins of his ancestor Abraham, and thus gave a tithe to Melchizedek while in Abraham, thus proving that Melchizedek's, thus proving that Melchizedek's priesthood is of a higher order than the Levitical one. Is this just figurative? And if it is, I don't see how this could then be used as a strong argument by the author to render that priesthood obsolete and thus exalt Christ." says, could Augustine's view be upheld in light of the scripture? Uh, in parentheses, I've also seen this same scripture be used to defend the federal headship view that Abraham stood as the father of the Hebrew line, at, so Levi was represented. What do you make of these verses? Heiser says, this harkens back to our inspiration discussion, which we talked about. The stuff about how biblical writers can make inerrant theological points, even thought, using flawed pre-scientific thinking. This is a classic example. We need to start with showing the pre-unscientific nature of the writers for this one. <clears throat> and it's easy. Just think about these ideas in verses below. We read right over them all the time and never think about what we're doing. We know, as moderns, that children are actually made as the result of the union of a male sperm and a female sperm. Oh, boy. We know, as moderns, that children are actually made as the result of the union of a male sperm and the female egg. That is, the child is not whole. It's not the child inside the male. No whole biological human being is ever or has ever been in the male father. My children were never in me. When my wife and I had sex, my sperm fertilized an egg inside her and our children were conceived. At that point, a person was inside my wife. And again, a whole person can never be inside a man. This is biology 101. All that is in the male is sperm. This is absolute invariable scientific fact. Sounds like uh, bears eat beets. Uh, we prove it every time there is an in vitro fertilization procedure. It's absolute truth, and yet the biblical writers had no clue of it, and how could they? The biblical writers had the common ancient view that a man deposited a child into a woman's womb where it would grow to adulthood, just like planting a seed. This is a part of the biblical garden imagery for sex, by the way. It's also the reason for the need for offerings when blood or semen was lost. It has to do with restoring loss of life. This is why in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for seed, uh, Hebrew is zera. In, uh, in Greek, it is sperma, interestingly enough. And each language describes offering and plant seeds. They had no idea of the biology behind it all. The reason more modern cultures and language use seed the same way is twofold. We inherited it from the Bible, and biological science didn't discover how kids were really made until the modern period. Here are some examples. The Old Testament uses zerah with ayin, uh, okay, for plant seeds, offspring, and semen. But to the point, even if you don't want to believe that the biblical writers didn't know about the correct biology, the statement of Hebrews 7, 8, 10 is scientifically untrue and even impossible according to our God-given biology. 
whole human beings, persons, are never in a single parent until after conception occurs. That is how God made us. Taking Hebrews 7, 8 to 10, the way Augustine would want it, and he didn't know the biology either, so we'll give him a pass, is absolutely disallowed by the truth of creation. So what does Hebrews 7, 8 to 10 mean? I think the word biblical commentary has a nice summation. He says, the basis of Melchizedek's superiority to the Levitical priests in this second contrast is the eternity of Melchizedek's predicated in verse 3b, which has in view the perpetuation of his priestly office. The importance of this aspect of the argument will become clear in verses 15 and 16, where it is applied to the Messianic priests. So far as the record of scripture is concerned, Melchizedek has no end of life and his unique priesthood has no successor. But what is true of Melchizedek in a limited and literary sense is true absolutely of the one who serves his people as high priest in the presence of God. Additionally, nine, verse 9-10 say, The climax of the argument is reached in verse 9 and qualified in verse 10. It specifies the implication of the first contrast between Melchizedek and the Levitical priest by deducing the deeper significance of the fact that Abraham allotted a tithe to Melchizedek. The literary phrase, Has epas epin, which in English would say, one might almost say, was frequently used when a writer broke off the train of his thought and, not wishing to treat his theme more wholly, would summarize as succinctly as possible what he had to say. Here it indicates the writer clearly recognized his statement that Levi had paid a tithe to Melchizedek was not literally true. Because at the moment in primal history, when Abraham met Melchizedek, Levi was as yet unborn. In other words, he wasn't born yet. Nevertheless, the statement that Levi had himself paid the tithe was truth in an important sense, indicated by the expression di Avram, through Abraham in English, which immediately follows the corporate solidarity that bound Israel to the patriarch implied that Levi was fully represented in Adam, Abraham's action. Therefore, Levi's status relative to Melchizedek was affected by Abraham's relationship to that personage. Consequently, the superiority of Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood is not merely theoretical, but has a basis in history. Oh my gosh, Hazard's got a lot to say on this. The assertion in verse 9 is justified and explained in verse 10, as shown by the explanatory conjunction gar, which means because in English, although Levi was as yet unborn when Melchizedek met Abraham, the tithe Abraham gave to Melchizedek was a gesture that anticipated the subordination of Levi and the Levitical priesthood to the priesthood like Melchizedek's that would be inaugurated as at God's appointed time. He says that last sentence is the theological point, which is not an error, though the writer uses unscientific language to make it. I don't know. I don't know if I like the Heiser's approach here because it seems like in Romans 5.12 that Heiser is making a big argument to say that Romans 5.12, the Augustinian view of original sin with the sperm being transmitted and that has to do with sin and guiltiness, that being passed on between generations. Like, obviously that's, I think it's an unbiblical view, but if if your argument, which Heiser seems to be making the argument that the... Augustine's view is wrong, and one of the reasons that he does that and says that is because it's unscientific. But if he's okay with unscientific claims over here in Hebrews, but not over there in Romans 5.12, I don't understand why he's making that argument. 
I don't know. That's probably overcomplicating things. I I really don't know what Heiser's trying to get at or why he's making this argument here. Anyways, one last comment. The commenter says, I think you are so anti-tradition because you do not spend any time conversant with those men who have thought on these doctrines much harder than you. You need to read some of the older divines to temper your zeal for the new and innovative. It's amazing that he's responding to these people. <laughs> That's amazing. Even if what the commenter is saying is true, that, you know, he's so anti-tradition and he needs to read more, it doesn't mean he's wrong, okay? So really, it's a mute point and it doesn't matter. He's essentially just name-calling. Heiser says, I'm not anti-tradition. I'm indifferent to it. There's a difference. Tradition should serve the text, not the other way around. My loyalties are to the text only and to the Lord of the text, not to tradition. Tradition, with respect to the church fathers, has major problems. Like Augustine not knowing Greek or Hebrew, pardon me, but that is a problem. The Westminster divines, as capable as they were, did nearly all their work without the decipherment of tens of thousands of lines of ancient Near Eastern texts that contextualize the entire Bible. Sorry, that is a problem, but they're still useful, but limited. He says, I also have no penchant for the innovative. If you haven't discovered my secret yet, here it is loud and clear. I just affirm the text. I say what it says, contextualized by its ancient culture and by other scripture texts that comment on the same subjects, and that's it. I put nothing in it that isn't there. It's the naked Bible. It is what it says. It says what it is. And it doesn't say what it isn't in it. No secret and not profound. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, everyone has bias. He says, after this, you'll be wondering what the sin nature is in my view. Yeah, we'll get to that. And guess what? I'm just going to let Paul say what he says and let the chips fall. Interesting. Okay, maybe we'll finally get our answers to a couple of our questions. Anyways... It's been a lot of fun. That is the end of part four. We talked three previous parts. This is part four now. Make sure to check out the rest if you haven't already. This has been a great series. Make sure to let me know in the comments what you think. I've got a lot of questions with this. I hope we get answered in the future. If you think you have answers, let me know. I would love to hear them because, quite frankly, some of this doesn't really make much sense. I don't know if it's the unclear nature of his writing or maybe i'm just not thinking very clearly whichever i appreciate the, all the comments and feedback uh if you have any suggestions for new videos or uh you know articles that i could read uh send me send them to me and i'll uh, i'll give them a read anyways thanks guys it's been fun make sure to like and subscribe if you want to listen to more of this peace